0: Our gospel reading this morning is from Luke, the 17th chapter, beginning with the 11th verse. If you wish to follow along with the Pew Bible, it's found at page 75 of the New Testament portion. Listen now for God's Word. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a samaritan then jesus asked were not 10 made clean but the other 9 where are they was none of them found to return and give praise to god except this foreigner then he said to him get up and go on your way your faith has made you well this is the word of the lord thank you lord The geography of this story is imprecise. For the third time since the ninth chapter of Luke's gospel, we are told that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. But now he's in this region between Samaria and Galilee, and scholars have had a hard time down the years placing a pin in the precise spot on the map where this is supposed to have happened. The problem is, is that We know Galilee, right? Galilee is the country. Galilee's up north, it's a small town, it's a a collection of small towns and villages about 90 miles from the bustling metropolis of Jerusalem. Galilee, Galilee is home for Jesus and for his disciples. It's carpenters and fishermen and synagogues and farms. Galilee we know. Samaria, also a little bit south of Galilee, we know that as well. It's distinct in its own way. It's the northern half of the divided kingdom of Israel, if you remember your Old Testament history where Samaria seceded from Judah, the southern kingdom. Even if you're not a biblical historian, however, and have just been following along with Luke's story, you know that Samaria is complicated. Right after he resolved for the first time to go to Jerusalem, Jesus went to a village in Samaria and was quickly kicked out. We know Samaria as well, but the region between Samaria and Galilee, that is harder to fix. It's, a, it's an in-between space. It's partly here, but it's also partly there. It's Nogales, partly in Mexico, partly in Arizona. It's an in-between space, a contested territory where things can happen that will surprise you and that may rattle you. There's great risk and great opportunity in an in-between space. I lived for a very short time in an in-between space in 1998 and 99, a place called the Cornerstone Community in Belfast in Northern Ireland. The Cornerstone Community is a house that is situated on a road in the western part of that city that divides a Protestant neighborhood from a Catholic one. And during the worst of the troubles in that country's history, it was occupied, that house, by Protestant and Catholic leaders who wanted to give a visible witness to nonviolence and peace and reconciliation. And to do that, they chose an address right in the middle of an in-between space. But in-between spaces aren't always buildings. They don't even have to be physical. Some in-between spaces are temporal, like the time between jobs or the time between relationships. You experience the already accomplished and the not yet arrived at the very same time. In-between spaces can also be developmental. I work with the youth in this congregation, and I can tell you that adolescence is an in-between space. (laughs) Part childhood, part adulthood. There are great risks in adolescence, and they're well-documented, but the emerging capabilities of teenagers are also a wonder to behold at the same time. We know these in-between spaces, don't we? They're moments of great promise that carry with them the possibility of great disappointment. You might go so far as to say that the life of faith is one long in-between space. Discipleship involves both a confident grasp of the promises of God in Jesus Christ and a slow and protracted kind of waiting for God's promised future, where violence has ended and tears are no more. Discipleship is an already and a not yet experience. It's an in-between space. Well, the good news is that Jesus is quite frequently found in in in-between spaces, and he's there on purpose. These 10 lepers who approach Jesus are also there on purpose. Jesus, master, have mercy on us. That's how they address Jesus, and that very address signals that we're not on solid ground here. Right away, we can tell. This is no ordinary encounter for a couple of reasons. First, the word master, the Greek word that's translated here as, as master, is only ever used by insiders, by disciples of Jesus. It's a term like teacher, or Lord, or sensei, or coach. It's a term of address that you only get to use with someone if you enjoy a certain kind of relationship with them. You don't just get to call somebody those things. And yet, that's exactly the term that these 10 use to address Jesus, a person they've never met, and a person who, especially given their physical condition, they have no right to even speak to. It's remarkable but this is the only instance in all of Luke's gospel in which somebody other than a disciple of Jesus addresses him with that term. It's also unique because they're lepers, and if you don't know, here's the deal with lepers in the Bible. They don't belong anywhere near other people. Leprosy or Hansen's disease is a contagious affliction that causes lesions on the skin, and from time immemorial, Jewish tradition, Jewish law, in fact, has stipulated lepers' removal from the community. So the book of Leviticus in the 13th chapter says this, the person who has the leprous disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head be disheveled, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. That's just the law, guys. But Jesus doesn't go in for that kind of discrimination, though, does he? I mean, if we're paying any attention, we're bound to notice that what God is up to in Jesus is the inclusion of the excluded, the the abolition of discrimination of all kinds against those who are deemed unclean. In fact, in the story about Jesus that Luke is telling, the terms clean and unclean are not even reliable concepts for faith anymore. All Jesus does is tell these 10 lepers to go and show themselves to the priests. He doesn't touch them like he did in an earlier encounter with a leper. He doesn't tell them to go bathe in the Jordan River seven times, like an ancient Israelite prophet once prescribed as a cure for leprosy. No, he simply tells them to go and show themselves to the priests. But you would only do that once the healing had already happened. They're already healed, even as they stand there. Now, don't let the miracle of this put you off the scent of what's really happening in this story. There is more than trickery rustling around these bushes. Healing stories are about more than cures because the healed in these stories are always suffering from more than physical symptoms. When you're in need of healing, physically, spiritually, emotionally, you need more, you yearn for more than the alleviation of physical symptoms, don't you? The first line of the hymn that we sung together at the beginning of worship, we come to you for healing, Lord, of body, mind, and soul, and pray that by your Spirit's touch we may again be whole. The healing we seek, the healing these lepers in the story seek, is wholeness. Physical healing, yes, but also a restoration to their community. This is precisely what Jesus accomplishes in healing them. He cleanses them from the thing that is keeping them on the outside, and he makes them whole physically, socially, and spiritually. This is what we're really hunting, the reign of God, and it's here. It's breaking out on the body politic here, as those who have been kept out are welcomed in. But it goes even further than that, because more than simply welcomed in, one of those healed is lifted up and honored as an example of faith for all to follow. And it's the last one you would expect. Here's the deal with Samaritans in the Bible. Samaritans are bad, real bad. They're a backward bunch of heretics who split off from Israel centuries ago and have been held in contempt by respectable Israelites ever since. Yet, Jesus chooses a Samaritan, a Samaritan leper at that, as a model of what faith is all about. Imagine it. It's like a a Citizen of the Year award given to an undocumented migrant. It's like an Olympic gold medal placed around the neck of the athlete who didn't even make the team. It's like a packed arena cheering for the girl who got cut from her high school choir. It's everything that we know about achievement and status and goodness turned upside down because faith has been found in a Samaritan leper. So Jesus tells him, Your faith has made you well. It can just as well be translated, Your faith has saved you. Note, not your faith has healed you, He was healed already. The other nine who were with him who can't be found to come back they're healed as well the healing happens irrespective of the faith faith is only a grateful response and friends that is a truth that pervades everything the church believes and does from our care for the poor to our baptism of children because when we baptize a child We claim the promises of God for that child, irrespective of any faith on their part, their children, because we believe that God's grace, God's love and acceptance is not something that we earn. It's given as a gift, and baptism is as powerful a sign of that truth as you will ever see. God claims us before we can ever make a claim for God. We love because God first loved us. That's the truth, and faith is a response. To the mercy and the love of, that God has already freely given to us. But here's the unique rule of the Samaritan leper faith is most visible, oftentimes, in the lives of those who are the most marginal and the most excluded. If we want to see what faith looks like, we should look first for the Samaritan lepers in our world the men and the women and the children. That society has decided are unclean and outcast. The faith of a Samaritan leper saved him and it can save us. But I imagine, I imagine Jesus' disciples sitting there listening to him say this and feeling a little angry, a little confused. I mean, they have left everything to follow Jesus. They are committed They're sleeping in the dirt with him. They are traipsing around this region between Galilee and Samaria, knowing full well they're on their way to a furnace in Jerusalem. He's not lauding their faith. And they're even asking for more of it. Earlier in this chapter, before the story we read, the disciples plead with Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. Well, boys, here you go. You wanna know what faith is? You want me to show you? Here is a foreigner. He turned around. That's part of, part of his faith, I think, is that he turned around. And I'm not sure I would have done that. I'm a rule follower. I think I probably would have kept going with the other nine who didn't come back. Jesus said to go show ourselves to the priest, so that's what we're going to go do. We've clearly been healed and made clean here. We're... We're awful grateful, but uh, he gave us instructions, and we're going to follow them. Still, there's nine of us and only one who left, so the odds are with us that we're doing the right thing. I think I would have probably stayed with the nine. But he didn't. He turned around. He returned. Luke loves this word. He uses it 21 times in his gospel to signal that a person has had their mind changed and has turned around and reoriented their life to Jesus, Sometimes faith is just an act of turning around, of changing direction, changing your mind, stepping outside your plans and your instructions to follow where your gut wants to take you. And where the Samaritan's gut wants to take him is to Jesus' feet to give thanks. The word that's used here to say that he thanked Jesus is Eucharist, which you might recognize as a word that many Christian traditions use to describe communion or the Lord's Supper. It simply means thanksgiving. And one commentator has suggested of the story that it is the thanksgiving that saves the Samaritan leper and makes him well. And there may be something to that. There's a growing body of research, isn't there, on the connection between gratitude and wellness. Just to take one particular study, researchers asked participants to write a few sentences each week focusing on particular topics. One group wrote about things they were grateful for that had occurred during the week. A second group wrote about daily irritations or things that had displeased them. And the third wrote about events that had affected them with no emphasis on them being positive or negative. And after 10 weeks, those who wrote about gratitude were more optimistic and felt better about their lives. Surprisingly, they also exercised more and had fewer visits to physicians than those who focused on sources of aggravation. Gratitude can literally save a life. But the Samaritan former leper doesn't seem to me to be practicing gratitude as as a personal habit. He's simply responding from his heart to something that Jesus has done for him that has changed his life. The gratitude, it seems to me, is as much of a miracle as the healing that prompted it. The response of a grateful heart and a life newly turned toward Jesus for the first time or for the 184th time is a sign of the coming reign of God. Gratitude is as miraculous a sign of the kingdom as any healing. And so Jesus tells the healed man to get up and go. He's not healing him to recruit him as a disciple. This is not a church growth strategy. But you can be sure that he will be talking about what Jesus did for him. If he talks, all he's done in this story is yell and call out. He may be singing. Lord Jesus, you shall be my song as I journey. That's the title and the first line of a hymn that we're going to sing here in a minute. The note at the bottom of that page is going to tell you that that's a French hymn, but I imagine that it could have originated from any in-between space where a new life is miraculously discovered, joyful praise is just as miraculously given. Lord Jesus, you shall be my song as I journey. I'll tell everybody about you wherever I go. You alone are our life and our peace and our love. Lord Jesus, you shall be my song as I journey. May that be our song. Amen.